Welcome back, listeners, to Diversion Insights. Today, my guest is Laura Yazway. But before we get that started, I want to thank our sponsor, IMI. IMI is an American medical device manufacturer specializing in devices that enhance the safety of medication from the pharmacy to the patient. Creating products for the compounding pharmacist is their sole focus. And as a result, their customers experience the quality, service, and value only a specialized partner can offer. Laura is an experienced litigator with 30 years of experience. Some of the areas of her practice are now focused on professional and attorney discipline and licensing and criminal defense. And as such, she works with healthcare professionals who have actions against their license diversion, falsifying records, etc. But she can tell us better what types of cases she sees. So I'm going to let her do that. Welcome, Laura. I am very much looking forward to our interview today. One is because I just love your personality. Um, but two, I think you're going to give us insight and a different perspective on those who have a history of substance use disorder. So welcome, and I'm really looking forward to it. Start by telling us a little bit about you and why you transitioned into this type of law. Well, I appreciate your kind words about my personality. I have learned that I am an acquired taste. <laughs> Either people love me or they're like, oh my God, she's too much, but whatever, it's fine. Um, uh, I'm comfortable with that, uh, but thank you for having me very much. So my history is, um, I've been practicing, like you said, for 30 years, which I honestly can't believe, but um, I started off as a public defender. I had two years in Wisconsin right out of law school. I went to law school at DePaul in Chicago. Two years in Wisconsin. Then when I got married, I came down here to Indianapolis. I was in the public defender office here for two years. From there, I went to, oh, and the PD office um, here, I did uh, started off in low-level felonies and then did major felonies. Then from there, I went to our Indiana Supreme Court Disciplinary Commission, which um, is the um, body in Indiana that investigates and prosecutes allegations of misconduct against lawyers. I was there for 13 years, and then I left there, and I went to the Attorney General's office, where I was heading up the section at first, half of the medical section, and then over time, it became the whole section. Um, doing the same thing that I did at the Disciplinary Commission, investigating and prosecuting allegations of misconduct against medical professionals. And there was a smattering of others and other professionals in there too. And so uh, I was uh, fortunate enough to lead that division and be able to train that division. So then I left there and um, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And so I uh, decided I was gonna go out on my own. And so that's what I did. And now I defend um, attorneys and other licensed professionals uh, when they do have an action against their license. And obviously, as your listeners know, there's very often crossover between a licensing action and, um, and criminal cases, unfortunately. I also do um, chins and TPR cases, which uh, in Indiana is um, when DCS, Department of Child Services, is involved in a case. And then I also do, uh, as a public defender contract, which I'm still very proud that I serve as a public defender, um, just as a contract, uh, I uh, represent those who are in jeopardy of a civil commitment. 
So um, that's that's it. I'm yeah. And Terry, listen, if I get a little too talky, stop me. Okay. All right. Um, no, all of that was great. So, and in, in you kind of flip sides then, right? You oh, went from, sure. yeah. Yeah. Well, as I say, I feel like I kind of came home, right? Okay. I started off doing criminal defense. And then I, I, you know, I, I feel like I came home. Okay. All right. And so what are you seeing being on that opposite sides of, um, when it comes to a healthcare professional prosecuting and now you're defending? So I think that the, the biggest thing that I knew that I have learned is that, um, you know, no one as a child says, you know what, when I grew up, I'm going to be an addict. No one says that. No one says that. But something, ha and, and I knew that before. I knew that when I was prosecuting cases, right? I mean, you know, it's that seems obvious. But what I didn't know was the level, the depth, the pervasiveness, and the and the continuous trauma that people endure as children, and then into their adulthood, um, and how that leads to substance use disorder. I, I had, I had no idea, you know, I mean, I, I, I grew up very fortunate. Uh, I grew up in suburban Chicago and I had, you know, my, my parents were, were married until I was like, you know, 19 and, um, we never lacked for anything probably to the other end. Um, and I, I, I I, I, while I understand, I, I knew, right. I mean, as you know, obviously if I always went, if I originally went into the defense, I knew that, but boy, I just did not know. And, um, do you think if you had realized that earlier on, it would have made a difference when it came to the prosecution? I mean, obviously that's your job. I mean, your side needs to win, right? I mean, that, that's I just why you're okay. I absolutely disagree with that. Okay. I don't think your side needs to win. I think as lawyers, I think I might get myself in trouble with this, but sometimes you see young lawyers who that's their, that's their mentality. Okay. And I don't think that's what we're here to do as lawyers. I really don't. Um, you know, um, if I don't know if you ever went to my website, Terry, but I had a, a an uncle, um, who, when I was growing up, who was like a, he was a, a lawyer in Elgin, Illinois, which is, you know, not really small town, but whatever. Uh, he did a little bit of everything. And when I was either graduating law school or just after I passed the bar, he said to me, always remember, there's more than one reason they call you counselor. And I have never forgotten that. I mean, you know, never. And, you know, early when I was a public defender, when that CBS show 48 hours really was 48 hours in the life of uh whatever they did one on New York public defenders. And I remember somewhat one of the practitioners there saying, you know, I do this because if it's not me, it might not be somebody else. So there's a big part that is about just listening. And so when I was at the attorney general's office, um, which I should say, 
in most states um, for uh, medical professionals, it is um, the board itself that has a staff of investigators who, when a, com a consumer complaint comes in, they investigate the case and, and decide about whether or not they're going to prosecute it. In Indiana, it's not like that. In Indiana, the case goes, the, a consumer complaint goes the attorney general staff then investigates and makes a determination about whether uh, a formal administrative complaint should be filed in front of the board. Okay. So um, when I was at the attorney general's office over that division, I thought that our uh, duty, we had three prongs that we had to do. The first was certainly to protect the public from an unsafe practitioner. But the second was to protect a practitioner from an unfounded grievance. And the third is sometimes just to make people feel heard. Like even if I can't do anything for them, by the time that they get to the point that they have figured out how to file a complaint against someone, even if you can't do something, they need someone to say, yeah, I, I, I hear you and that's terrible what happened to you or whatever. So again, I realize I'm being a little long-winded and I'm sorry for that, but, okay. but I, I think it's really important to say, I don't think it's about winning. I think it's about doing the right thing. I guess okay. I said that 20, you know, three minutes ago. But no, 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 no. That makes sense. And that gives us good insight into that, too. So when a case ends up to the point where it's in court or needs a lawyer, I'm guessing that's kind of a whole nother level, right? So once it gets that far, what is the process and procedure that you and the healthcare professional need to go through to get that license back? Well, so so there's two things that happen. So when you know, and, and it's not automatic that the practitioner is going to lose their license. I mean, that that's not automatic. Sure. In some cases, yes. In Indiana, we have what is called a summary suspension, which is like an emergency suspension. So what that is here in Indiana is it is a non-final order where the attorney general would file a petition for summary suspension, alleging that the person poses a clear and immediate danger to the public if they are allowed to continue to practice. And so, you know, for instance, let's say a pill mill case, okay? So you have a doctor or a nurse practitioner or even a pharmacy that is a pill mill. Well, those cases take a very long time to investigate, right? You, you have to get the, um, the uh, what we call here inspect the um, the, uh, the the database that that the pharmacy has uh, that the you know, PFD. yeah the, yeah that's it that's it thank you um, you know you got to get that for the practitioner and for the patients and you know and then uh, there's just so much that goes into it you got to get the medical records for the patients I mean it can take over a year right and um, particularly at least here in Indiana, there's not a whole police department doing it. Sometimes you might have the DEA, but, you know, and sometimes the complaint might come from the police, but generally it doesn't. I mean, generally, at least when I was there, you figured it out, like, boy, we're getting a lot of complaints about this person. And then you, oh, you know, so, all right. So in that instance, um, you don't want that practitioner to continue to practice and pose a risk to patients if they continue to practice. So basically you're saying to the board, listen, we don't have any, we don't have enough to do something right now, but we would like, um, you know, a summary suspension of this practitioner's license. And in Indiana, it goes for 90 days and then you have to renew it. 
The other time that that might happen is if the practitioner has criminal charges pending. Because um, in that situation, and I feel like I didn't really answer your question, but in that situation, if, if they have criminal charges pending, they're very limited in what they can say in their response to the investigation because their Fifth Amendment right is still there, right? And so it's much, you don't want to get out ahead of the criminal case because the burden of proof is higher. So sometimes if a person has criminal charges pending, sometimes they would file a petition for a summary suspension until the criminal charges are resolved and then you'll know one way or the other what has to happen, okay? So, so there's a couple of different things about um, that process. So, so um, generally what happens is, and this is not just in Indiana, uh, an informal complaint is filed, whether in your state, if it's the board or in Indiana, it would be with the attorney general's office. You would be, no the practitioner is notified that there has been a complaint um, and you have an opportunity to respond to that complaint. I believe that it, you should have a lawyer in that situation. Now, obviously I am a lawyer, so I'm a little biased, but you do wanna be careful what you say because there might not be criminal charges already pending, but you don't wanna trigger criminal charges to be pending, like saying, I did it. I stole a bunch of drugs and here's how I did. I mean, you know, you don't, you certainly, you need to be cognizant of that. So I think that there is a way to say, here's my response, but not address, you know, the ultimate issue, right, of diversion or whatever. Um, so, so once the, um, whoever it is that does that investigation, they're going to, they're going to investigate it. So let's say that it's, it's a diversion allegation. Um, the investigator is obviously going to take the response, but they're going to get the records from wherever you, the, the person is accused of diverting from, whether it's from the hospital, they're going to get the employment records. They might get patient records um, to say, you know, oh, did um, Susie Smith only need um, morphine when nurse Steve was on, right, was, was working that day. Um, or, and they might get the Pixis records and compare Pixis records to how, how much did this person dispense? How many overrides did that person have as opposed to every other person in the hospital? So they're going to get all of that. That takes time. At the completion of that investigation, then whether it's the staff of the board or the um, AG, they're going to make a decision about whether or not formal charges should be filed against the person's license. In Indiana, that is the first time anything, and I would imagine in other states, that's the first time anything is public. Prior to that, it is completely confidential. And the reason for that is because, at least when I was at the AGs, like 60% of uh, the consumer complaints that came in were dismissed. Oh. Yeah, well, I, I think that's about what it was. I mean, I'm not entirely sure, but I feel like that's what it was. Um, and the reason for that is because anybody can file a consumer complaint at any time, right? right. We have what I affectionately call Jerry Springer complaints, where you would have, you know, in, you know, you know, may God rest his soul, you know, poor Jerry Springer. But in any event, um, uh, uh, you know, you might have ex-girlfriend file a complaint against ex-boyfriend's new girlfriend, right? There's nothing right. to it, but, you know, yeah. so, yeah. Um, so, so when and, and so that's why it's private 
Um, so when, a cons when an actual formal complaint or that petition for summary suspension that I talked about is filed, um, that's when anything becomes public. What's going to happen then is that it goes like any other case. You can either settle it for an agreed disposition or you can have a trial. It's at that point that if, if you agree to a suspension or the, you have a trial and the board decides to suspend the license, that's when you start talking about getting the license back. Okay, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, so it sounds like one of the, the things I was going to ask you is when should somebody engage a lawyer? And it sounds like it's when the licensing board reaches out to you and says there's been a complaint filed before you even respond to them. I didn't do it or what's it about? That's what your recommendation would be. Yes. Yes, I, I, I believe so. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, what about... What about if somebody is, is working at a healthcare facility and they do have a substance use disorder and they are diverting and they know it, they haven't been found out yet, or at least they don't think they've been found out yet, and they've decided that they, they want help and they want to confess and go to their employer and tell them, and you know, I need some leave, I need to go to recovery. I guess they could just not say anything to the employer. They could just say, I need some leave. Um, that probably would be the best thing, I would guess. Um, yeah, but if they did say something or if they're hearing that the facility is on to them, they've got a tip and they've decided now that they are going to go confess and say, I need help. Would you suggest that they engage a lawyer before they open their mouth at that point? Well, you know, there's two things, whether the person is going to confess or they're pulled off the floor and brought into the dreaded room when you walk in and HR is there and loss prevention is there and all yeah. that. Um, you know, it's a tough, it's a really tough call. I used to say, I don't know that I actually used to say, you know, to go, yeah, you know, go ahead and confess because then you're being honest and that will help you later. But I have recently had several cases where the person did exactly what you're talking about. Okay. Um, they did go in, they had a great relationship with their supervisor. They told their supervisor what was going on. Sometimes the super supervisor said, I kind of suspected, right? Um, but the concern is what happens after that. So, um, I have a case, you and I were recently talking about this. I have a case right now where um, I have a nurse who did just that, went to, um, said I need help, went to um, a facility here in, uh, in Indiana uh, called Parkdale, where I believe is run by Rachel Garcia. I think you've done yeah. a podcast with him. He's a, a wonderful, amazing person. Um, but, uh, you know, went there, uh, but then the consumer complaint was filed, um, and, uh, ultimately he has, uh, that person has criminal charges pending in two counties and it is run by, it's being prosecuted by Medicaid fraud control unit, um, and 
in, instead of by the local prosecutor. Sometimes that can happen. And so um, I, that, he, that client has been doing everything right for two years. And that client has remained sober and, you know, did, did impatient, did, um, did IOP, you know, did aftercare, has done everything they can. And I think, you know, that client is now looking at a felony conviction. Hmm. And if it's, if it's a felony conviction, um, then that client, it, it's a mandatory exclusion from Medicaid and Medicare from the Department of Homeland Security. A felony conviction will very often, unless paperwork gets lost, right? Unless you get super lucky. Um, so they're done. They're done in terms of practicing medicine. Five years, yeah. Okay, five years. Okay. Yeah, it, it's it's a if the person has a felony conviction with that relates to controlled substances, it is a mandatory exclusion for five years. Okay. However, a misdemeanor conviction is a permissive exclusion, um, meaning they don't have to be excluded. You know, you would have the same process of having the opportunity to respond and all of that, um, but it's only three years. Okay. So, you know. Um, so is it is it safe to assume this particular client? I mean, was they they admitted? Um, so you would think that would would count for them, but it, they're still in trouble and obviously fraud in terms of charting. I'm guessing, right? Is was what they did over and above so egregious, or is this what happens anytime there's charting? fraud if that's what's going on i mean in this case is this pretty much what you would expect to see for anything that involves um one of my frustrations is that there is a lack of consistency at least from my perspective okay. what i what i have seen um and it depends on um as far as criminal charges go um you know uh if you know, of course, not in every case is the person criminally charged, right? Sometimes, right, it, it doesn't go to that level. But in cases where there is a criminal charge, you know, it's it the the my client is really um, at the mercy of that county prosecutor, or if the county prosecutor referred the case back to the attorney general Medicaid uh, fraud control unit. And they have certain policy decisions. So I have had clients who are in similar situations and some of them have gone to drug treatment court where if they, um, you know, they, they're in a very intensive program, like it's like super intense probation and super intense aftercare where they're screening and, you know, all of this to help them with their sobriety. And if at the end of whatever the period of time is, they have completed the program successfully, their case is dismissed, mm -hmm. completely dismissed. But then I have other cases that are very similar and 
that person is facing a felony conviction and at least the end of their career for five years, unless we can, you know, after a year, get it reduced to a misdemeanor. So it's, it's, it, it's very frustrating, um, you know, because the, the other thing that is so difficult is that when someone is new into sobriety and hopefully, um, and, and full disclosure, I don't have a substance use disorder, but I, I, you know, I, I know people who do obviously, and, um, I slept at a Holiday Inn Express last night, but whatever. Okay. So, <laughs> the young kids don't get that joke, but look at it, Google it. So, um, but anyways, um, the, uh, you know, it's, um, I completely lost my train of thought. It, it's, it's, it's very frustrating. Yeah, the consistency and lack of consistency. Yeah, and and, they're, and yeah. they're completely at the mercy yeah. of, you know, of the, uh, of that prosecutor. So I hope. So I wonder, know. yeah, no, I wonder if those prosecutors are the ones that believe they have to win at all costs, have no insight into, yeah. I, I don't know. And sometimes I think it comes from, you know, higher ups policy and, you know, um, and federal funding policy. And I mean, I, I, I don't know the answer. And mm. certainly, you know, I, I do have to preface the whole thing by saying these are just, you know, my opinions, but um, and frustrations that I see on this end. Um, oh, I know what I was going to say now, but it's you know, certainly any prosecutor absolutely has prosecutorial discretion. I mean, they can do whatever they want. And it's it's their, um, you know, electorate who needs to be informed and and, you know, decide if they think those policies are right. Right. So, um, you know, they they most certainly have have the right to prosecute or not prosecute and offer a, a, a um, you know, some kind of a make a plea offer or not make a plea offer, you know, that is their right. It's my job as the defense attorney to try to protect my client's interests as best I can. Now, what I was going to say before is that, you know, when, when my clients are new into sobriety or even if they're not, the accountability is a big part mm -hmm. and honesty is a big part of getting sober. And, um, so it's, it's, it's a challenge because, well, what, what does that person say? What do they reveal? You know, they, they have to balance their needs for if they're working steps, you know, uh, because for years, by the time somebody comes to me, they, well, that's really not true. Most of the time though, they've been struggling for a long time. Yes. And sometimes not sometimes as, as I'm sure, you know, it happens that fast, right? It's a four months. You know, they ended up with 10 years of addiction in four months or something. Right. But but. Um, they've been lying and manipulating others and hiding things for so long that coming clean feels good. But unfortunately, our mm. legal system may not have <laughs> like, don't say anything. <laughs> right. Another reason that um. I think have a lawyer, because let me take that off your plate. That makes sense. Yeah. I didn't think about that. Yeah. The need to get it off. Like I've been caught. Phew, okay. Let me get it off my chest, but don't say anything. 
Right. That it's going to incriminate you and end up in trouble. Correct. Correct. Okay. And so it's, it's, it's a very mm -hmm. fine line and you know, um, yeah, and that's why I say let the lawyer worry about that. You, yeah. you know, you dump it all out on the lawyer, right? Well, then it's right. up to them to figure out what to do. Yeah. And now I have a client where something happened where that this client has been sober for years now, but there's a different issue that came up. It's completely separate, and it's kind of a one-off sort of a thing. And I called that person and I said, you know, how do you want to handle this? because I know this is the conflict for you, but as a lawyer, I need to let you make this decision. And that client said, well, you know, I, I need to be doing the next right thing. I need to be doing the next right thing. And I said, well, you think about it and then get back to me, you know? Um, so yeah. It's, it, it, yeah, if you do the confession right thing. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Hmm. Okay. Um, are you finding that facilities are also being held accountable for diversion type related incidences? You know, they, they allow, I mean, some, some hospitals I think have, you know, fabulous programs and we can't prevent everything. So we do our best to mitigate and then we do our best to catch things right away if it happens. And so things, you know, go get through, but other hospitals, they're, they're just, they're not even looking. Um, so are you finding that facilities are being held accountable in any way when one of these cases comes forward? I don't know that I actually am the best person to ask for that because I represent practitioners. Um, I don't represent hospitals. Okay. So, um, you would, you're not really hearing about in something else that might be going on related to the case. Not really. No, I, okay. I know. I that, yeah, no, I, I you okay. know, hospitals are going to be represented by some huge firm, right? And right. I am not that. So, and I don't want to be that. So, yeah, um, I, yeah I, I don't. And that's not, that's not part of your strategy to say, hey, let's split the, uh, let's split the responsibility here. We need to bring the facilities. Yeah, I mean, I, I, there are times that I'm like, are you kidding me? How was this allowed to go on for so long? Okay. Yeah. Um, and particularly when I was at the AGs, there was a, there was a case there that I was shocked by. Um, but in Indiana, the AG doesn't investigate the hospital. It's um, I think the Department of Health does it. So um, it's um, but but pharmacies, right? So if they're the pharmacy within the hospital, the AG would investigate. But again, those are going to be investigated by okay. or represented by large. Right. So, right. and I'm not, I'm, it's, you know, just me. And yeah. Yeah. So is um, there, is there anything you, you mentioned, you know, all of the things that, that the process that they would go through getting all the automated dispensing machine records and, you know, medical records and all of that kind of stuff. Is there anything that you find yourself wishing that the, people or person in charge of gathering all that evidence that led to the suspicion and started this whole ball rolling had included in that information from, from your perspective when it comes to the defense side. You know, whenever I'm doing an audit, I try to be as um, 
non-biased as possible. You know, if I'm finding something in the, the data that is like, oh, that's bad. But then also, oh, but, you know, everybody else is doing this or they also do this sometimes um, that is good. I mean, it's, it's not bad. And I try to just put that whole thing together. Um, so is there anything that you find yourself wishing, man, I wish they had done this or going back and asking, hey, can you, you know, give us this information or tell us this? What the biggest thing that I find is that the person investigating often does not have any idea what it's really like on the floor. Oh, okay. And so I have had several cases and I have to apologize. I'm getting over laryngitis that I can't believe I still have. And so I, um, I'm a little self-conscious of it, but, um, it's just your sexy voice. Brenda Vaccaro, also something the kids don't know. <laughs> um, but you know, th there's a disconnect, you know, they, they, we hear about the nursing shortage, the nursing shortage. I'm not convinced there's a nursing shortage. I think that there is a lack of will to pay nurses. And so, um, so what I see are incredibly overworked nurses, particularly during COVID, um, who have, you know, six highly acute patients and they're running all over trying to care for them they don't have time to go to the bathroom they don't have time to eat right and so if you don't have time to go to the get go to the bathroom guess what you might not chart everything that needs to be charted mm -hmm. um and that is i think critical for loss prevention or diversion investigators to understand you know go do a ride along, which someone called that, you know, to me, they said it the other day that they're doing ride alongs now. Yeah. Um, go see what it's really like on the floor. Um, so that you can really understand, is this a charting error? Right. Or is this diversion? Right. Yeah. Um, well, and that's, that's where the partnership with the nurse manager comes in really handy too, but you have to be able to trust the nurse manager that it's not just a whole bias thing and they refuse to see it, but that they're really giving you an accurate assessment of, oh yeah, no, this, you know, this is reality. But sometimes um, the nurse manager's hands can be tied. Okay. Because most, you know, in my experience, the nurse manager knows that the nurse is completely overworked. And, you know, I, I, I I believe it's still this the case in Indiana. I could be wrong that we don't have nurse to patient ratios. Oh, yeah. I, I think that's still the case. And so, you know, if I, 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 I can't imagine that the nurse manager is like, oh no, it's fine. You can take care of, yeah. you know, seven highly acute patients by yourself. Yeah. Well, you and gotta do what you gotta do with the people you have. Six months. Right. You know, um, and so I, I would imagine that that the nurse manager has already been thinking the same thing. But you know what? The nurse manager wants to keep their job, too. Yeah, I can't say it out loud. So much that, you know, sure, they can tell their supervisors. Hey, we need more staff. We need more staff. We need more staff. Yeah. Well, tell me something I didn't know. Right. Right. 
Yeah, that makes sense. That's a larger problem. I mean, that's that's a systemic problem. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a good, and I guess that's something important for those doing the investigation to understand what their ratios and what all of that is in their state too, because um, that plays into how how you approach things. Okay, yeah, no, that makes sense. All right. You know, and you, that's the other thing that right. really bugs me. Okay. Tell me. That we have these signs outside the hospitals. Heroes work here. Oh, the first responders. We have a, you know, it's it's National Nurses Week, right? What are we, that's lip service. I mean, it is. Yeah. If we're not going to support the nurses. Yeah. Right. And, and instead say, well, here's more, 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 more. Oh, you injured your back moving a client and now you have all these problems, right? That's all lip service. And, right. and it frankly makes me crazy. Yeah. Yeah. No, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, I agree with you. We need, you know, to, we need yet, to take care yeah, of our people. You know, what, what, why are they heroes, right? Why do we say that? We say that because they're the incredible stress they're under how hard they're working, their physical, you know, the impact on their bodies, the trauma that they see. And they, they keep on going. Out, right? Yeah. You know, particularly, again, during COVID, where they were not only the nurse, but they had to be family. They had to sit there and watch people die by themselves. I'm about to cry. You know, I just, it's, it's awful. But yeah. yet, when that nurse succumbs to the very stress that they are put under repeatedly. Yeah. And that manifests in a substance use disorder. We say, well, guess what? Yeah. See ya. Uh, now you're on the yeah. OIG exclusion use list and you can't practice where right. uh, Medicaid or Medicare. Really? Right. Really? You think right. you're not screw it, you're gonna get a felony conviction. What? Yeah. That just seems so fundamentally wrong yeah. to me. Look, and I'm also not saying that people should get a pass right obviously they should not get a pass okay did they break the law yes did they did they in theory put patients at risk because of possibly possibly okay you know did they do absolutely but the people who are but if they're doing what they need to do and they have gone to treatment and they're working their program and they're doing what they need to do guess what they already know they did something wrong right they're yeah. already paying the price because their lives have been turned upside down because they left their families for a month to go to treatment then they did iop for six weeks three hours a day five days a week right then they have aftercare then they're going to three meetings every single week at least and a lot of these people have kids and, you know, and they, they have basketball practice and soccer and ballet and all of this. Well, you try to figure out how to navigate that while you have to go to three meetings a week, plus go to therapy. And your right. drug treatment if you're in recovery monitoring treatment, right? You try to figure right. Out. Yeah, and kick the disease. I mean, they're, you know, they've got all that right. going on. So, so, you know, and again, I'm not saying they should get off scot-free. They shouldn't. They should be put on probation for, you know, for, for violating their, the Nurse Practice Act. They should be 
Um, you know, if, if there's a criminal prosecution, we don't have a better mechanism for that at this point, right? Um, you know, and, and they did break the law, okay. But I think there has to be some balance in the fact that these people put themselves on the front lines every single day. And when they succumb and they see things that I could only imagine, right? I mean, you know, someone that I know recently just had a compound fracture in their arm and somebody tells me that and I'm like, Ugh, right? I mean, I can't even imagine looking at somebody's bone sticking out of their arm, right? So the trauma that these people are engaged, see every single day and they succumb to that and it just it just doesn't right yeah just, Account, accountability with compassion we, we i love need that them, so i love yeah. that yes yes yeah, yes. That's yeah. Gonna, can i use that can you I can use, use that, that. yes <laughs> yeah no it's right though you need them both i mean right. not scot free but not ruin their lives i mean let's yeah throw some compassion and, and mercy in there and, and, and some yeah. people got it, right? Some people, they did it and they went to drug treatment court and they're now, you know, yeah. so that's what seems so unfair. Yeah, yeah, and right. Not consistent and yeah, it's kind of a crapshoot it sounds like what you're gonna end up with. Exactly. Um, yeah, do you have any, um, any suggestions or things that you would like to say to those involved in the intervention of a suspected diversion case. You know, you're going in, you're gonna face this person and, and sit them down and, you know, ask them those, those pointed questions. Is there anything that you wanna to say to those that are involved in that intervention? Well, from a legal perspective, I guess it's, the, it's exactly what we just said, just exercise compassion. Okay, yeah. You know, and, and the other thing here is that, you know, um, at least one of the hospitals here in Indiana, they have a great EAP program and they're great about second chances and, you know, rehiring the person, okay. um, you know, and obviously monitoring them and all of that. Um, and I, I so appreciate that facility. Yeah. Um, but um, I think and of course, you know, you can't do that in every situation, right? You know, right. I mean, I, I understand yeah. that. Um, so it's, uh, it's one size doesn't really fit all. And, uh, you know, so I don't, I don't know that I really have anything other than that, just to right. compassion. Because again, right. nobody thought, oh yeah, I went to school to get my right. nursing license or my pharmacy license and all of this. And yeah, and I'm going to end up, with a substance, you know, nobody wanted that. Right, right, so, yeah, yeah, agreed, okay. All right, well, all of this was great, and I, I can only imagine that your clients are in good hands. You're, you're very so. passionate about what you do, and um, so I, I think they're in good hands. Some of it's out of your control, obviously, but I can see you giving everything you've got to every case that you have. So thank you for, for the work that you do and for taking the time today to, to talk with me. It was very insightful. Thank you for having me. Absolutely.
I want to thank I want to thank our sponsor. You can learn more about IMI at imiweb.com, where you can see their complete line of innovative tamper-evident products, including their industry-leading line of tamper-evident caps, which have become an industry standard for guarding drug delivery containers such as IV oral and NFIT syringes, IV bags, and medication cassettes. Thank you all for listening, and thank you again, Laura. Thank you.